0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an Israeli conductor, who not only conducts, but is also an international piano soloist. He founded the Suedama Ensemble in New York, and in 2013, he founded the Geneva Camerata, where he's been music and artistic director ever since. It's a real pleasure to welcome David grail Summer. David, it's wonderful to meet you, to see you, and to speak with you. I can see through the powers of Zoom that you're in a cityscape. Where are you, and what are you doing there? Uh, So I'm in Hong Kong,
1: um, and right now I'm doing my mandatory quarantine for 14 days. But thankfully, once this is done, uh, I can go back to performing some real concerts, for live audiences, which is really great these days. And I have a solo recital, piano recital, and then uh, I'm making my debut with the Hong Kong Philharmonic as conductor and pianist uh, and uh, conducting some very, very cool, a very cool program.
0: Brilliant. I can think of worse place to. To be stuck in a hotel room and having food delivered, I'm imagining the food is pretty good. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad, and
1: and I love I love Asian food, and I love spicy food. So I'm very I'm yeah I'm very happy.
0: Everything's good. Well, the last thing we'll talk about before we finish the episode will be food. So we'll come back to that later. Um, with everybody, I go back to the beginning and ask you. Do you come from a musical family? How did music first enter your life? Was it a shock to your parents? Um, (laughs) How did music first enter your world?
1: Actually, um, both of my parents are amateur musicians. Uh, Not professional, but music has always been part of their lives and therefore our family's life. Um, So actually, Before I was born, when my mother was pregnant, she had this idea in her her mind. She had decided that her first son would be a pianist, not Mm -hmm. necessarily a professional pianist, but just, you know, uh, she was an amateur pianist herself and it never quite uh, worked out. So I think it was kind of a a very ancient dream that she had Um, so... When she was pregnant, she made that decision and she actually went ahead and bought a piano before I was born. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of had no choice, I guess. Um, So, yeah, when I was six years old, I started piano. Uh, You know, my parents were, you know, pushing me, but not at all in a kind of severe way. Uh, They're just, you know, incredible music and culture and art lovers. And we are a very, very musical family. I have four brothers, we are five boys all together and everybody's playing some kind of an instrument either professionally or not professionally, Uh, but music has always been there. It's very important uh, for all of us. And and it was a very, very loving, very warm environment for for becoming a musician.
0: Mm. Well, uh, you made me think, actually, when you were talking about your mum and before you were born, uh, I was expecting you to say that, you know, she she practised the piano for hours and hours and hours whilst you were <laughs> still in the womb, hoping that it would transmit across. Um, no. Uh, I, <laughs> no. I, I do remember with our first child, uh, Emily, I used to tap on uh, my wife's um, pregnant belly, uh, rhythms like Ravel's Bolero and Shostakovich's 7th century, <laughs> which maybe is why she went on to be a, be a very good percussionist. I don't know, but... Um, oh, <laughs> she, that's that's interesting. That's yeah, very interesting. I, I, don't, I have no idea. Um, so the piano for you, uh, <laughs> predestined, it seems, um, studying at home in Israel. Um, yeah. At some point, you moved to New York and went and studied at the Juilliard. Was that a big wrench, leaving home? Um, what made you go to the Juilliard?
1: Well, you know, I, I, uh, I grew up in Jerusalem, uh, in Israel, as you mentioned. And uh, when I was uh, 18 years old, as, as with all youngsters uh, in Israel, had to go to the army, Mm. and serve you know the, the the mandatory service in Israel for a few years so um, you know when you go through that and obviously you cannot really practice your instrument as you would like during uh, your military service um, it, it's, it's a difficult period mm. and at the age of 21 when I finished my military service, um, you know, I was kind of at a personal crossroad uh, in Israel, and I I really wanted to finally um, develop, study, uh, go out, and it was the right time. So, to answer your question, it really felt like the right thing to do, to travel. It had been my dream to go to New York. Uh, I had never, you know, really had the chance to uh, to travel to New York and to start uh, any kind of, you know, major studies. So it was a very big deal for me. And, and of course, that the kind of <laughs> culture shock between I had just finished my military service uh, after these, you know, very intense, complex years. And very soon after, just a few months later, basically found myself uh, at the Juilliard School starting studies in this incredible, uh, renowned uh, conservatory. So the contrast was inimaginable, really uh, unique. But it is what contributed also, I think, later on to my wish to, you know, always undertake kind of uh, unusual projects and um, projects that are not the obvious ones, projects that, have risk taking in them because I learned a lot from that period. You know, if, if, if you have, if you are in an, in an intense period of your life and you dream about certain projects, you know, just, you just, at some point you just go for it and (laughs) you make it happen. So this, this period uh, taught me a lot actually. and, And I remember it as I actually remember my period in the army as a very interesting, enriching,
0: uh, period of my life I would imagine you did a lot of thinking away from the piano
1: exactly uh, artistic exactly.
0: thinking you know because when you're learning an instrument like well, any any instrument you become obsessed with the minutiae of it with the with the technicalities and the technical aspects of it um and you'd you know to a degree you stop thinking about artistic visions and plans uh, and abs- yeah.
1: absolutely and I, I would even go further and say that, yeah, I know it's gonna sound very cheesy, but I'm gonna say it anyway. (laughs) Um, uh, It's only in those times that you are, you know, being being taken away this thing that you love so much that you truly realize how much you need it. I I have to say, I, you know, I started music when I was six. It was always there, uh, you know, all my life. And then suddenly one day, you've never asked yourself this question, what happens when somebody takes that away from you mm. and it's that's it. It's gone. What, what happens? And, and when I went to the army, suddenly this, this happened for the first time. And uh, it was the opportunity, just as you said, to finally think where do we go from here? Mm. How much do I need it? How much is it necessary for my future, for my life to have this, you know, for my own personal development in life. And I realized that I really could not live without it. And then that this is what I wanted to do. So again, this is why sometimes people ask me about the spirit. Was it difficult? I I am very grateful Mm. for it because just for that one thing of realizing how much I loved music and piano, uh, it was, it was a great, great moment.
0: Back to New York and your first album is play conducting early Mozart concerti with Vanguard records in 0405, which leads me to a question. Uh, Obviously, you were doing wonders as a pianist for somebody to want to record early Mozart concerti with you, but you're playing and conducting, which means at any point before there, or at what point before there, did you think about playing and conducting uh, at the same time and did you have any lessons in it did you seek any advice from a conducting teacher did you even study conducting uh because yeah. I can't find any reference to it what was your path to firstly play conduct and then obviously on conducting
1: yeah so f- a few things happened in that period you know I I, I I had already been in New York for quite a while studying uh at Juilliard and one thing is that This is the period that I realized, truly realized my passion and my love for Mozart. I mean, it had always been there. Uh, I remember myself when I was a kid, you know, seven years old, my mom playing uh, on an old, uh, you know, LP disc, uh, some Mozart piano sonatas and me thinking, oh, this music is the most beautiful in the world. But I never quite realized it. And it's only my first years in New York through a variety of. Uh, activities, concerts, uh, encounters with musicians that I realized, wow, Mozart, that's something I really want to have a big part of my life. Mm. And I started, you know, playing pretty much all of the piano concertos in that period, studying them, uh, being fascinated by Mozart's way of writing for orchestra, not just for piano. This was really my door my first door, maybe, to orchestral writing, to the symphonic world. The mm. symphonies. My, I remember discovering the Jupiter Symphony in that <laughs> time. I mean, truly discovering and studying the score, and I was like, "Wow, this is crazy!" Um, so, what happened at the same time is also I started studying uh, during my master's I started studying conducting as well at Juilliard Mm. uh, kind of parallel to my piano studies and at first it was you know I I completely did not mean to you know become a conductor uh, or anything like that I was so busy with the piano (laughs) you know uh, being a pianist is already enough hours a day practicing you know it's not like I was dreaming of something else and you know as I was studying conducting uh during that time i i little by little i thought you know how um, i would say how complementary it is to the piano you know piano is one thing but then when you start studying conducting you start being aware of colors Mm. of harmonic thinking of i would say landscape Mm -hmm. what sounds truly represent. And I thought these early discoveries in the conducting world were truly uh, revelations to me. Mm. I have to say, we all know, you know, being a pianist is something very, very beautiful, but very solitary. I'm not talking, you know, on a social, uh, in a social way, solitary in the way that as pianists, we are always taught to be Extra concentrated on our instrument. You know, this is such, such a self-sufficient instrument. Yes, it's the it's the king of the jungle of instruments, and and the piano is an orchestra, a piano can do pretty much anything. So I think it's in the tradition we are taught that pretty much I'm gonna say something awful, and my piano teachers will hate me, but we are being <laughs> t- we are being taught that. Piano is just good enough. It's it's mm. okay. We can do anything. And so as a pianist, you are so concentrated in, your, you know, your Chopin etudes, your Beethoven sonatas, Mozart piano concertos, Bach, Prelude, and Fugues. And you forget that there's a whole world out there yeah, yeah. that should be discovered. And this is what conducting started to represent for me in that period. And so when I finally had this opportunity, this first recording project, I felt, how do I bring together these two worlds that now have an important part in my life? And hmm. Mozart piano concertos was kind of the obvious and immediate answer to that. However, I, I had come to realize in those years that Mozart has a a unique repertoire that nobody seems to be interested in. And that is the early pieces, all the pieces that he wrote when he was very, very young, because Mm -hmm. Mozart is always young, but really the early periods, you know, when he was 10, 11, 13, 14 years old. And he wrote some incredible music during that time that very few orchestras, string quartets, soloists play. Uh, And I... I really fell in love with this music and I thought, okay, this is the time. So I went ahead and recorded these three first Mozart concertos, um, that to this day I still perform and I really love. Uh, and this was basically my, my kind of my first steps as, as conductor.
0: Who did you study with at Juilliard or was it outside of Juilliard?
1: So we had at the time, I don't know if, if, uh, uh, if you know, there was this very famous uh, conductor, old man uh, named Otto Werner Muller, mm. who was this this great figure from German descent, of course, was kind of the uh, emperor of conducting in New York. And uh, he had designated his assistant, uh, a wonderful uh, conductor, Nancy Allen um, She And she was really the one, you know, uh, who was teaching uh, conducting for non-conductors, basically, uh, for pianists, violinists. But it was a very intense course. And I I was completely kind of not ready for, for that, because, as I said, I started by just being very curious. And the course was very intense. And we had the chance to conduct... Uh, ensembles, and, and we just, you know, all the richness of the Juilliard School, um, and, and it, was, it was just an incredible uh, experience at, at
0: Juilliard. So it sounds like, you know, those conducting lessons, plus recording the early Mozart concerti, really got you into conducting and ensembles, and just a year or so later, in 2006, you founded the Sway Dharma Ensemble in New York. Uh, an interesting word, Um, (laughs) Sway Dharma. What sort of music did you perform in that uh, ensemble? And were you already starting to put into practice some of those interesting projects you've been thinking about? So actually, so
1: first of all, I should explain, Sway Dharma is just Amadeus backwards uh so
0: (laughs) so so it is yes i'm looking at it on the on the paper and so it is yes very very good (laughs)
1: uh so actually it is with suedama this is the the creation of suedama and the recording kind of happened in fact at the same time Mm. and uh my two mozart recordings because i have uh two recordings of piano concertos, one, the early piano concertos and a a much uh, later one that I also did in New York. Both of them uh, I was fortunate to do with uh, Suedama. Basically, you know, these were extraordinary chamber music partners uh, from my years at Juilliard, uh, musicians that I cherished and loved, that I had the chance to uh, play concerts with and um, and it was just the opportunity to gather these wonderful musicians and tell them, Hey, let's, let's record some Mozart. Mm. Uh, so, so the first, the first album was the, the early concertos. And then the later one, uh, the piano concertos, number 22 and number 24, uh, from the later period of Mozart. So, um, this, you know, this Suedama was, was basically the first orchestra that I could completely experiment with, uh, and as as you know as as we all know these first years as as conductor you truly don't realize <laughs> what this profession is all about you have all these ideas but it's actually so many other things mm. than what you think so uh, you know these first experiences with people that i knew kind of gave me a little cushion uh, <laughs> before <laughs> the profession becomes much more intense and brutal. Uh, mm. But, you know, these first years uh, of working as conductor with with musicians that I love, it was, it was just a great start. And it made me understand a lot of things that I hadn't realized at that point about conducting.
0: Before we leave New York and go to the middle of Europe, which we're going to any minute now, a question has just popped into my head. Because... It is about that learning process early on. But I'm assuming something here, and hopefully you'll agree with me, but if you don't, I'll be interested in your answer. Because your, your first steps into conducting were through play directing, playing a soloist yep. and directing the orchestra at the same time, I'm assuming, also because you're playing with friends there, I'm assuming you learned to trust the orchestra very, very, very early on. Um, something that some conductors, when they're studying, just conducting, and I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but that learning that level of trust is something they find hard. As a soloist, you've got no choice. You have to trust the orchestra whilst you're being the soloist, And then coming in and out of those tutti areas where you're not playing, again, you have to trust the concertmaster or the leader or whoever needs to bring in the orchestra. Am I right in thinking that? that early on, you've got that. You have to trust them because if you don't, there's no way it can work.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you're raising such an important point and such a key issue in our profession. Hmm. Uh, the, The matter of trust. I mean, I believe today that this is what it's all about. This is truly what can make a conductor uh, successful or maybe a total failure Mm. Uh, because having great technique, of course it's important and having energy and inspiration and knowledge, all of this is, is a given. Of Mm. course we need it. And without all of that, we cannot succeed. But trust and i would add to that respect yes yeah um trusting the orchestra and respecting the musicians and not being the one to impose your vision and that's it mm. if you can trust the people who are around you i think you already achieved maybe 80 percent of the rehearsal and as you mentioned and i find that to be 100 percent true as a soloist when you play with the orchestra, you have to trust them. You have no choice because they are the one to support you. They are Mm. the one to accompany you. They are the one who are going to follow you to heaven (laughs) or (laughs) to hell, Uh, but, but you need them. And if you don't trust them, if you don't respect them, you can be the best pianist in the world. your performance will be no good. So Hmm. I think indeed that having this, this, uh, these beginnings as a soloist and, you know, opening that door instead of, as you said, the the kind of traditional conducting uh, uh, classes, I would say that this really taught me about, because I, as I say many times to musicians in the orchestra, I come from your world. Mm. I, I, I am an instrumentalist like you guys. I know what it is um, to be there, to study your score before uh, orchestra rehearsal, to, to you know, to put your markings in your score, uh, to need to count uh, <laughs> rhythm during rehearsals, to be stressed out before a concert. I, I, I know all these things. And I th- you know, I'm, I'm, I really think that this is what gives you that kind of trust towards musician, and and it's always
0: been very helpful. Well, the analogy I would use, uh, and I've used it occasions on this podcast, but I'm going to use it again, is that really as a conductor, we are we're riding a horse, um, and the best conductors are the ones who let the horse run. Um, but knowing that they're needed to help the horse jump over a stream or jump over a fence and occasionally to be holding the reins enough so that if the horse sees a rabbit or a dog and wants to run to the left or the right or to be skittish then to hold the reins and to help them through that moment but the point is you're not telling the horse how to run because the horse knows how to run you know the horse knows how to trot it knows how to jog it knows how to jump but sometimes it needs you to help it to tell it, jump now, you know, and and that's our job. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I, I agree
1: with that. And I I would add to that one one more thing, because we were talking about the New York period. One thing that was crucial to me, and and it also uh, addresses uh, this point of yours, during that time in New York, I spent a lot of my nights in jazz clubs. (laughs) I spent a lot of my time getting to know jazz musicians, blues musicians, world music musicians. Uh, and, and especially this is the period where I, you know, I completely discovered the world of improvisation and the world of, of, of jazz. And I think that this notion of trusting uh, your fellows, if you are, you know, a, a jazz pianist in a, in a jazz trio, and, and, you know, you have your drummer and your double bass player and you're going to do kind of a crazy improvisation. If you don't trust these guys around you to be there for you, to mm. hold the chords, to really give you all these colors that you need and the rhythm, you're not going to make it happen. And all these nights that I spent in, in jazz clubs during that New York period, it also taught me so much about trusting and about how much this openness of the jazz world is so important
0: also in our classical world Mm. well that sounds terrible spending nights in jazz clubs in new york how (laughs) how bad for you (laughs) and learning whilst doing it Well, let's go to a different city, which has maybe not got quite as good a nightlife as New York, but, you know, it's still a wonderful place because I love it. In 09, you become music director of the Geneva Chamber Orchestra. And then in 2013, you start or founded uh, the Geneva Camerata, of which you're the music director and artistic director now. Uh, an orchestra well known for its projects being... As you've said earlier on, uh, slightly left of center or slightly off the wall. Um, I mean, you as a pianist, you know, you've done things like uh, playing all of the Mozart sonatas in a marathon back to back. I can't remember how many hours that took you. And also putting the music of Scarlatti next to John Cage. And so, what sort of things have you done with your orchestra in, in Geneva? Um, how did you start it? Um, did would you just decide, right? I want to start my own orchestra. Uh, but how do you go about starting it? You, I'm assuming you needed to find funders or people interested <laughs> in helping you.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it came at a time where I had already been conducting orchestras for for uh, you know uh, quite a certain amount of time, maybe ten years or so. Um, and you know, I was I was getting more and more experience in the conducting world making some debuts here and there I, I came to the realization that for the kind of projects that i really wanted to do these kind of very uh i don't know kind of uh wild projects in which uh, different worlds come together yeah. creating creating Uh, encounters between different styles, uh, between different genres. This is really one of the things I was most interested in. Uh, Also, it is a time where I started being really involved both in contemporary music, but also in Baroque music on period instruments. Um, And so all these things were happening at that time of my life. And I thought that if I want to go further, if I really want to Uh, give life to some projects that I had in my mind uh, it would require a different kind of tool a a different kind of uh, organization because as as you know with with traditional orchestras so to speak you know symphony orchestras these are in general very rigid organizations these Mm. are I mean even if they are incredible and and amazing in their quality Uh, the symphony orchestra is really an entity that has its roots in the 19th century uh, in the past and it's 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 not very flexible and it's difficult to change things uh, and it's difficult to propose daring and audacious projects it's just Mm. orchestras are not built for that uh, maybe it will change in the future, but right now, early 21st century, it's still this way. Mm. So, one way that seemed obvious to me would be to uh, create a new orchestra that would address this issue of how to offer the public more daring projects, uh, and the purpose, of course, would be would have to be also make classical music more available, more accessible, because it is my strong belief that through these daring and audacious projects, you don't just do it because you want to do it or because you want to be interesting or because it's cool. (laughs) You do it because you do it. If you want to do it, it needs a good reason. And for me, the good reason would be because I felt that classical music was still not touching enough young people uh, or enough audience members that, believe that and i would say rightly so that classical music is for a certain elite and uh i i thought this this was not the only way to address it but it is one way if you offer projects that convince people that they are different cooler more accessible uh more interesting less old school yeah then you can bring a new audience into the concert hall. And this was the purpose. And, you know, to make a long story short, of course, it required a lot of uh, very hard work at the start and fundraising and uh, finding cultural foundations that would uh, agree to sponsor this kind of project. But it also required many other things, uh, not just, you know, uh, Geneva is a very cultured city that has a lot of classical music, Amazing uh, uh, orchestras already, concert halls, concert series. Uh, it's you know it's a well-known city for classical music already. So it also required to find a new audience in, mm. in a city that's already saturated with classical music. But more importantly, maybe the most important, was how to find musicians that would be willing to take any kind of risk. Mm. Really, uh, anything that you want to ask them and also musicians who agree to improvise jazz musicians who would agree to play in the same concert uh, a very complex contemporary piece by I don't know Boulez or Ligeti and in the same concert switch to uh, baroque instruments and play uh, a piece by Purcell on 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 period instruments mm-hmm. and at the same time maybe uh, collaborate with a choreographer uh, so you need to find musicians who agree to do that. And this was the process, maybe the most intense process at the beginning was to find these 40, 45 musicians who have this ability and who want to devote their life to these kind of unusual risk taking uh, uh, projects. Um, and to, to answer also the, the last part of your question, the kind of projects that we I would say we take pride in the most uh, beyond hosting extraordinary soloists like you know many orchestras who play soloists who play well-known concertos but i think that the the, the projects in which we really take pride in are the the projects that are collaborations with other disciplines and with other artistic forms. So just to give you an example, a very recent example, because that's the best I could give uh, very recently, uh, we performed Dvorak's uh, new world symphony uh, entirely choreographed. Um, So what happened was that the orchestra played the new world symphony completely by memory Mm. and at the same time, dancing, all the musicians were dancing while playing on a new choreography that was created especially for for us for the Geneva Camerata. Um, and so you had on stage, uh, you know, fifty musicians who were performing Dvorak's Ninth and dancing, and it was you know the wildest thing that you could <laughs> imagine. Um, we we have been touring. You know well, now we had we had covet on our way but just before that we had been touring for the past three years with a wonderful project called dance of the sun in which the orchestra dances on pieces by lully and on mozart's uh, symphony number no. 40 uh, and that's another project with contemporary dance it's, it involves also theater so our musicians are required to be musicians uh, actors dancers uh, we, we welcome a lot of uh, well-known jazz musicians, our musicians improvise with them. So this is just you know kind of the tip of the iceberg, just to give you a few examples of the kind of things we love to do.
0: Well, I'm not surprised that people find it interesting because I'm nodding away and smiling and thinking, wow, how do you do that? Um, also because you're taking trying to take the music to a new audience, but also you're, you're, if you take that to an old audience, that's new to them. So I'm not surprised that people are interested in in fundraising or helping you with the funds. Um, and another point to bring up is the fact that when I joined the profession in 1991, it was probably the back end of you were a symphony, a symphony orchestra musician and that was it. Um, yeah. Already then, education and going into schools and speaking to children about educating music was coming in. Already then, symphony orchestras like the CBSO that I was playing in were expected to play in a period instrument way, or at least know some of the ways of doing it. They were expected Absolutely. to play with no, no vibrato. So actually, from about then onwards, musicians have sort of been expected to add more than one string to their bow. Uh, to have a, an interest in improvisation, to have an interest in... In educating or being an educator, to have an interest in maybe presenting concerts, to have an interest in conducting, the, the days of just being a second fiddle player in a symphony orchestra and doing nothing Absolutely. else are probably gone. So I'm, I would, I'm not surprised it took you some time to find 45 musicians who are willing to do all those things, but I'm also not surprised that you did find you did find them because the world has changed to the point where musicians now are much more open to doing these things.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, I I always mention this, that when I arrived to Juilliard in uh, 1998, there was no jazz department and there was no baroque Mm. on period instrument department. By the time I left, after I did my master's, there was the most amazing uh, um, jazz department led by Wynton Marsalis, Mm. the great trumpet a uh, jazz trumpet player, and there was also about, they were about to open um, the Baroque department, which is now led by William Christie from Les Arts Florissants. So, you know, the yeah. world, as you said, the world has completely changed in the last 20 years. And I completely agree with that, you know, musicians cannot anymore only just play their instrument, And that's it. They have to have at least some kind of understanding and knowledge about contemporary music, about Baroque music, about jazz improvisation, and also about just other disciplines, Mm. Uh, dance, theater, acrobatics, Mm. uh, you know, many, many other things that seem to me essential to bringing new audiences to our concert hall. Mm. And, and this is maybe the key these collaborations with other disciplines are maybe the key for me at least to having a better a better future for classical music
0: a way From Geneva, away from dealing with the camerata, I'm sure there's all sorts of administrative stuff you end up doing. (laughs) Let alone just performing. Uh, You guest conduct, which is where I'm speaking to you now. You know, you're as you said, you're in Hong Kong. You're about to give a piano recital, and then uh, conduct. When you first go to an orchestra as a guest conductor, um, the speed dating world that we we end up a bit inhabiting. (laughs) Do you prefer the first time to go and play and conduct? Uh, in the concert is it something that is normally asked of you when you first go and work with an orchestra how often do you is your debut just conducting um it sounds a horrible phrase but you know it's a way of delineating it yeah
1: no no it's a good question I would say that back in the days you know some years ago uh you know obviously I was known as a pianist more time than I had been conducting you know because I'm a pianist before I'm a conductor. So I think the very first engagements, the first few years in my professional conducting career, definitely the majority of the orchestras were inviting me both as pianist and conductor. Mm. Uh, And then little by little, it started changing. um, You know, and in the last few years, certainly, I would say I'm getting as many invitations as so to speak, just conductor yeah, yeah. Uh, as much as pianist and conductor. I, I will say something, uh, you know, I, I, I love as much really equally going to an orchestra as a conductor or yeah. as pianist and conductor. And yeah. now it's really, I would say, kind of equal between concerts in which I'm, I'm conducting and there's another soloist or concerts in which I'm, I'm pianist and conductor. I love both. I love working with soloists, so both are fine with me. I I will say two things about this. One is that it's true that sometimes when you go to a very well known orchestra, uh, you know, kind of a prestigious orchestra, you're doing your debut, like maybe like what I'm about to do now with uh, Hong Kong Philharmonic as we are speaking, Mm. sometimes there's something very comforting. Uh, as coming to a first rehearsal and doing both piano and conducting, because, Uh um, you know, you can immediately, it it relates to what we were speaking about before. It immediately puts me in uh, kind of equality with the other musicians, because even even physically speaking, we are all sitting down. I'm also sitting down at the piano and we're all at the same height. So on all accounts, Physically, socially, musically, artistically, we're kind of equal and immediately it makes kind of the discussion much easier, I would yeah. say. Yeah. As you very well known, sometimes as a conductor, you arrive to an orchestra, it can be first time can be very, very difficult. <laughs> sometimes, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> stressful. Sometimes the connection is not what you had hoped for. Yeah. Uh, 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 the vision of the orchestra and your vision are very different. So be, coming to a first rehearsal as, as also pianist can be very nice. But as I said, I love both. The other thing I wanted to say is that the one aspect of my profession that I do less and less, in fact, is being a piano soloist and having a conductor uh, conduct, kind you. Of yeah. conduct me. Yeah. And it kind of happened naturally, you know, so I still do a lot of piano recitals. I conduct with other soloists and I conduct being pianist myself. But the one thing I do less and less is piano soloists in a concerto, having another conductor. And and it happened in a natural way for the, I think it's not that I don't enjoy it. I still enjoy having, you know, a a great conductor working, having a collaboration with a great conductor. It's just that now I've, performed pretty much all of these concertos with myself conducting, even Mm. not just Mozart, Beethoven, like the usual suspect, but I've, you know, I've conducted and played the Ravel uh, piano concerto, uh, Rhapsody in Blue, Schumann piano concerto. So, you know, even romantic and 20th century stuff Mm. I've done. So, uh, and I love doing it in a way I know exactly what I want to achieve, yes. uh, and and I know since we always have so little time with orchestras, and we're always wishing we could have more time to work. I know exactly how to get to the results that I I would like to achieve, and sometimes uh, having a conductor, it's not that it doesn't happen, but it just takes more time.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: and 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 therefore this is maybe you know, one part of, one aspect of uh, uh, my activity that I've been doing a bit less in
0: the last few years. Um, one question, I'm going to start this with a rather cynical statement, which does not apply to you, David, um, because, <laughs> because, you know, you started pretty much from the, from the get-go conducting and playing. Um, so this cynical statement does not apply to you. But often you see soloists take up conducting at a certain point of their career, shall we say, almost yeah. like some sort of pension so that, we, you know, when their solo playing career, they feel that it's yeah. come to a natural end. They can gently morph into being a conductor. Yeah. As I said, that doesn't apply to you because you've been conducting all the time. But do you see yeah. a point in the future when the piano will, will start to take a back, backward step uh, and you'll conduct more? Um, or, or eventually only conducts. Do you see that happening, or do you think that the piano will always be there?
1: No, I don't see that happening in yeah. any kind of way. And I'll tell you, the reason I know that is that, you know, in the last few years, there were seasons in which suddenly conducting took a much more important role, and I was, you know, conducting more and playing less recitals. Yeah. And I realised that... I, I really love it equally and I need both. This is what I would say nourishes me. This yes. is what makes me, it's what makes, yeah, it, it makes me the artist that I am to have these two very different, but at the same time, complementary uh, aspects about my work. I, I don't want to give up the piano, even if, you know, my conducting career went even further. I, I just... I love playing the piano and actually some of the craziest and wildest and weirdest ideas that I have for programs first come for, for the piano, because yeah. this is my, you know, this is my natural habitat. This is where I grew up. This is my little secret garden. Mm. I, I am a pianist before I am a conductor. And as I love conducting and, you know, having a career in conducting is is a blessing and I I need it because it's a community and I don't want to go back to the days where I was just solitary on the way just playing recitals. I love being in a community. I love working with musicians in the orchestra. So it's just that piano is an important part of my life and it will always be and uh, I don't see any kind of way that I would give it up. I thought that would be the answer,
0: but I thought I'd better check as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A question I've asked every conductor pretty much is about score preparation. Um, And I often ask the pianists, when you come to learn a new score, do you sit at the piano and use the piano? Or do you sit at your desk and use your inner ear? And when you come to learn a new score, do you go from big to small, or do you start on page one and work your way through? Do you do what one conductor said to me recently, which was, I read page one and the last page, and then page two and the penultimate page, and I work my way in. <laughs> uh, and when you learn a new score, are you a scribbler? Do you use pencils, red, blue, and black colors? How do you go about it?
1: Yeah, so I'm quite a kind of a maniac about uh, annotation and writing. I, I, I write everything. I'm you know, if you look at my scores, they're like extra annotated, uh, not just conducting scores, but piano scores, too. I, yeah. I write everything. If I have ideas, uh, you know, my piano scores with fingerings, I, I have everything in there. It's my Bible. So um, to me, uh, the pencil is uh, is an extremely important tool. I I do use color pencils in my conducting scores, but actually I use it a lot in my piano scores as well. Yeah. So uh, I, I you know for sure I use more colors uh, for my conducting scores, but I always wrote a lot. I I have to say that uh, for uh, my when I when I start learning a piece for an upcoming conducting project, I I just love to sit at at a table uh, just kind of just the score, my pencils, myself. Uh, I actually do not sit at the piano. Maybe it's because I spend enough hours at the piano already and (laughs) I, 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 you know, and it's enough. But I just love to have this, you know, kind of moment of quiet when I start with a new piece from the beginning, you know, clean you know, try to absorb it in my, in my mind, in my, you know, system and just go through. I, I don't have kind of a rule about uh, exactly how it, it really depends, you know. So for a contemporary piece, I'll have my set of techniques, mm. uh, how to approach it. For a big romantic symphony, I I, I will do it differently and for a minimalistic baroque piece it will be different i i I don't really want to have a set of of rules but i do love to start kind of clean without any tools just just the score on a table and a few pencils and that's it
0: great everybody has a different system and that's that's been proven throughout the podcast uh we've got people who never write anything down to people with highlighter pens and god knows what so yeah absolutely <laughs> I agree with you also there is that moment with a new score where you open it and just there's silence until and then you're it's, your it's inner, a magical yeah, yeah it's then a magical inner, moment your inner ear fills with what you think the score is telling you and what you think the you know composer yeah. has written
1: yeah it's a magic it's really that moment that you open a new score it's just a magical moment and i i I always cherish that moment and i always want to keep it you know very very pure and very clean
0: is conducting still a bit of a mystery to you would you like to know some more well you can find out all sorts of secrets tips opinions and much more on my patreon page you can hear interviews with musicians composers soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting you can read my diaries when I go on guest conducting trips. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded conducting fans. You can read articles on conducting and conductors. You can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, David Grailsammer. David, it's time for the 10 questions. And as it grows dark behind you in the skyline of Hong Kong, I shall ask you, what sound or (laughs) noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? So... I think
1: I recently discovered my very favorite sound in the world. Very, very recently. Um, I just, uh, a few weeks ago, I was on tour in Latin America, Mm -hmm. um, performing some concerts. And I had a break between two concerts. And I was able to, um, it was a dream for many, many years to go to the amazonas jungle oh wow. um somewhere on the border between brazil colombia and peru it's something i wanted to do for many years and uh while i was there i actually slept in the jungle in a little tree cabin mm-hmm. and falling asleep to the noise i don't know if i should call it noise or sound to the yeah. sound of the animals insects uh, I, there, was, there was no light whatsoever. Just the this, this sounds of, especially the insects and the mm. birds. I mean, it was, I have to say, this is my new favorite sound in the world. And I slept, I think I slept so well. I haven't slept like that in a million years. <laughs> uh, so for sure, the jungle, uh, the sound of the jungle insects, that has
0: become my very, very favorite sound. And a sound you don't like or even hate?
1: Yeah, I, I think I can say hate. Well, uh, I think I would say motorcycles under my room when I try to fall <laughs> asleep in my apartment. And where I live is very close to uh, Geneva Lake, and there's a there's a road with a lot of more motorcycles. And and that drives me absolutely nuts,
0: <laughs> crazy, really crazy. Well, I've said it before on this podcast, and we live on a very straight road, um, and it seems to be a road that uh, late at night, either motorcycles or people with cars that have uh, had their exhausts, exactly, to be loud, seem to love exactly, you know, accelerating past our house. Um, exactly,
1: I, 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 this drives me absolutely nuts i haven't yet had the chance to take a bucket of water and, and you know <laughs> like in the movies like in the movies to throw it but i have started thinking about
0: it if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing
1: yeah i i actually always try during tours to find to somehow find uh, a day or at least half a day for my own kind of freedom and activities what i love doing especially in big cities uh, when I have a day off, is spend the whole day in museums. This is really my big passion, paint, especially painting, mm. um, and and being in museums. Uh, it really something of a necessity for me. It inspires me, um, you know, uh, immersing in colors and in shapes, uh, especially with with you know paintings of the great masters. I I absolutely adore that, and it gives me the strength to continue on the tour so any day free that i have you can find me in in the museum for sure
0: <laughs> number four you can have more than one uh, or even just one whatever you like can you name a favorite conductor of yesteryear i
1: i think i would say it's it's a difficult question um uh, you know uh, speaking about conductors from the past because i feel that times have just changed so much in terms of conducting yes uh and 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 for some reason it's it's a more difficult question than if you were to ask me like a pianist from the past there would be many names that would come to mind but conductor from the past is more difficult however i would still answer uh bernstein Mm. um Not, I mean, of course, amazing musician and amazing conductor, but more for his communicative power and his kind of love of his love of people, his love of audiences, the way he communicated music to the audience. I mean, beyond the technique, you can like his technique, you can like his, you know interpretations yeah. of Beethoven, of, of Mahler, of, you know, Brahms, all of that. But that's not so much what I want to talk about. It's really the way he made so many people love music, you know, his lectures and his compositions and, you know, the, the musical theater and the, he was an amazing jazz improviser. And he, mm. you know, he really embodies to me the complete musician who understood that classical music, by itself is maybe not enough, that we need to open doors to other aspects of, of art. And you can see that in his conducting, how much he wants to open these doors. So I just for
0: that, I absolutely adore him. Well, the possibly a harder question, as some conductors find it hard, some don't. And who would be a favorite current conductor? And are they similar to Bernstein? <laughs> um, I I think
1: you know this is this is a this is a great question about you know current conductors, and I you know one aspect that I have um, been thinking a lot about in the last few years that I think has been more and more uh, discussed is uh, the place of women conductors in mm-hmm. our profession because you know as as. Uh, as we all know conducting is one of those professions where it's only very recently that women have had uh, really this 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 space to emerge and you know if you look 20 30 40 years ago there were almost no mm-hmm. women conductors and and you know it, this this is a this is a big deal um, and so I, I, I think that today if you ask me about the Current conductors that I that I admire, I would like to mention some some women conductors that I absolutely adore and that I think that are doing not only an amazing job in their profession and who are excellent conductors, but these are uh, uh, these are conductors that have opened the doors to I think many girls mm. to believe in themselves and to say. Yes, it has been a profession, a male profession for years, but it doesn't have to be anymore. And I'm a strong believer in this, you know, glass ceiling that that needs to be, you know, shattered and that uh, this profession needs to belong also to more uh, women conductors. And so I would mention for sure uh, somebody incredible who is Barbara Hannigan, who is a soprano, of course, but who has been leading a brilliant conducting career. She does incredible projects as conductor uh, and with, with extraordinary energy. But you know, I, on the other end, I would mention as a Baroque conductor, Emmanuel Haïm, mm.
0: um,
1: and, and I would mention two other extraordinary uh, conductors, uh, Susanna Malki and Marin Alsop, uh, who have been doing extraordinary careers. And I think it hasn't been easy for these girls to kind of open these doors, uh, even in our current world. And even after the Me Too movement, it's still not easy. So I'm full of admiration uh, for these uh, women conductors. And and I hope there will be many, many more.
0: Well, I played for three of those, four, uh, and agree Mm -hmm. with you, they're great conductors. I played for Emmanuel Haim, Marin Alsop, and Mm -hmm. um, Susanna Malky. Uh, I've interviewed Marion on here and talked to her about her Tacky Concordia fellowship and it was a pleasure and a joy to chat to Marion. and dear Barbara I know you'll be listening because uh, I interviewed Barbara early on in the podcast series and she's an avid listener to the podcast she's a real fan of it so uh, and I agree with you some of her projects (laughs) she does are absolutely amazing and not only that she you know she finds time to be uh, one of the greatest sopranos on the planet and runs three mentorship programs. So yeah, just, uh, she obviously likes keeping herself busy, um, but yeah, uh, brilliant choices. Absolutely wonderful choices. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I think that,
1: um, uh, it's a great question, by the way. <laughs> I think that uh, at the time, for sure, uh, now I've done it since then many, many times. But at the time, the most challenging work was the Ligeti Violin Concerto, mm. which I was very lucky to do with uh, Patricia Kopachinskaya, who's who's a friend and who's a wonderful soloist. And uh, this piece is extremely difficult for, for two very different reasons. One, of course, is, is just... Technical. I think it's one of Ligeti's most complex pieces and, and I'm, you know, Ligeti to me is a God. I absolutely love Ligeti. He's mm-hmm. one of my role models. Uh, I've recorded his music. I've played plenty of his music. He's on my latest album, Labyrinth as well. Uh, I, I, you know, anytime you give me <laughs> a Ligeti project, <laughs> I'll take it on. So, um, This music, the the violin concerto, is extremely difficult uh, technically, but the more difficult aspect of it is the theatrical and dramatic aspect of it because while you are, as conductor, you're busy with this extremely complex rhythms and this polyrhythm, so you you have all these complex, uh, separate rhythms happening at the same time. Mm. At the same time, this is the period of his life that he developed this extreme theatrical uh, a movement in which his music became more and more uh, wild and dramatic and influenced from influenced by jazz as well. And so I found myself the first time I conducted. Uh, the the, the violin concerto. I beyond the technicality, I found myself emotionally absolutely drained, <laughs> and this was one of the most intense. I, I to this day, I remember that first time. Uh, I was <laughs> I needed a break, like for two weeks <laughs> after that. But but I have to say, since then I've conducted it, uh, conducted it on on many occasions, and it has become one of my favorite favorite pieces. I I love it.
0: I remember vividly playing it. I've never conducted it. Uh, And actually, as a player, I used to always watch the conductor like mad and think what it must be like to conduct pieces. (laughs) Uh, But I only ever played the Ligeti Violin Concerto once, and it was a complete shock to me that I did, because there are only Uh four second violin parts, And that week I was sitting number five. So I wasn't in it. Uh, And then I came into the concert on the the last concert and somebody said, oh, by the way, you're on. Um, Number four's four's gone sick. Oh my God. And I I think we had a 30 minute seating rehearsal. I I would
1: be panicking like (laughs)
0: crazy. (laughs) Well, we had a 30 minute seating rehearsal and uh, I seem to remember it being Simon Rattle conducting and he said, well, we've got to go through certain moments because Mike's sight reading it in the concert. Uh, And and I never, uh, you know, Of course, Simon's beat was always there periphery in my vision. I never took my eyes off the music. I was frightened to death. Um, And so, yeah, it's a piece I I think I ought to get to know as a conductor, maybe, um, rather than as a frightened violinist. I know it's a fabulous (laughs) thing. I've I've listened to it, but by God, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's Um, fabulous, fabulous. Yeah, I love it. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well that's an easy question for me because uh, as
1: as is as an Israeli you know there are certain items of food that we <laughs> don't travel without right I have to say uh and and I am particularly um, a, a spicy uh, food eater I mean i chilies spice spicy food uh, jalapenos Anything that is crazy spicy, I will eat Mm. like, you know, on tour in restaurants. uh, People know that even before I sit to eat, they need to bring the spicy sauce. So actually now what I've come to do on many of my tours, uh, if I don't forget when I pack is to take some spicy sauce with me. And then I don't have any problem. I can just, you know, right now, for instance, during my quarantine, um, I'm being brought food to my my hotel room during this quarantine. And I have my spicy sauce. I can eat as much as I want. And I I don't need to bother the people at the reception to bring more and more spicy sauce to my room. So traveling with, with spicy sauce. I also travel, you might find this very strange, but many Israelis do that. I travel with tahini, Uh, For those who don't know, tahini is sesame paste, and we Israelis we eat that morning, noon, night, midnight, middle of the night. (laughs) Tahini is like very important uh in you know in all our meals. So actually I've come to travel with it and actually recently (laughs) I went traveling and arrived way too late to the place that I needed to get to, like 3 a.m. No restaurants open, nothing open. Um and luckily I had my tahini in my bag and this really saved my, it saved my, my, my evening meal. Um, so, so yeah, I, I try to travel with tahini and spicy sauce, uh, and this, this really can save my life.
0: Well, I'm now looking forward to the answer to question 10 very much. Um, but before then we (laughs) must do question eight. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think that
1: my biggest frustration in the conducting life is how little rehearsal time we have as conductors you know sometimes we are being asked to conduct the biggest masterpieces in music history in like a day and a half or sometimes a day of rehearsals you know Mm, mm. like sometimes i i ask myself how can you you know rehearse you know, those great Brahms symphonies, Dvorak symphonies, Mahler symphonies with just a few hours of rehearsals. Sometimes I think, man, this, this, this really doesn't make any sense. So I would say that if I could change something about life as conductor would be to have more time with the musicians of the orchestra, more time to rehearse these pieces. Um, I think that this would be something that would make me extremely happy just to have an extra day with the orchestra uh it, it could make a big difference sometimes you get to the concert and you just think to yourself ah i wish i had you know just an extra few hours to rehearse that piece and and that frustration sometimes can be a bit upsetting i don't know how, how you feel about it mm-hmm.
0: um if you feel the same but for me it's it's really a a big frustration sometimes. I have rarely ever got to a concert and thought, yeah, the, you know, uh, uh, this is, in fact, I've had too much rehearsal time, hardly ever. More yeah. If I have, it's normally with a conservatoire orchestra, very occasionally with an amateur orchestra, who have given me as many rehearsals as I've asked for, very, very occasionally, and super occasionally with a professional orchestra, where I think to myself, oh, yeah, 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 we, we could have, you know... Um, I mean, I I do often sometimes finish rehearsals early, but then that, that's because I think the energy's left the room, uh, rather than of I don't course, think, I of don't course. think I, there are things I could fix. Uh, of course, uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I it's this to to have more time to go at a pace that is not so frantic, frantic. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the word. You know, I mean, yes, I mean, you know, if people turn around to me and say, "But Mike, you've always finished rehearsals early," it's because the energy's left the room, and if I carried on. That all goodwill would be lost. Um, I, you know, you you do as much as you can in the time available, and sometimes you think, right, that's it. Yeah. It's time to finish early. But you know, when I've worked, to, for instance, in Germany, where I've got an extra day, um, yeah. and you just think, well, I can, t- I can, I can spend half an hour on this problem rather exactly. than the seven minutes I might have if I'm doing it in the UK. You exactly. know, uh, and then that problem will never come back. And it's just having more time to be relaxed about the rehearsal process, isn't it? Uh, That's what it is. Um,
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, number nine, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have had a go at?
1: Well, for the people who know me well, uh, they know one of my greatest passions is cooking. I, this is something I do all the time when, you know, when I'm at home, not on tour, I cook uh, and I prepare meals that, uh, you know, either, either for my loved ones or for friends or for people around me. I mean, I am absolutely passionate about it. Uh, you know, any, any cuisine, whether it's French, Italian, Asian, Israeli mediterranean uh american uh so so i would say to answer the question i think if i had a chance one day to have my own little restaurant uh with my own creations um, as as a cook as a chef um i think i i would have enjoyed i I know it's a very difficult profession as well (laughs) but at least in my mind i think i would have like to give this a try, mm. um, you know, a nice little restaurant with a beautiful view on the ocean or a lake um, and, and some very, very unique dishes. Um, I, I would love to give it a try, but, but uh, yeah, this is really, cooking is something that, you know, when I come back from a rehearsal, many times I'm, you know, as we all are really drained and completely, out of energy after a long day of rehearsals, especially, you know, if you rehearse a big piece with an orchestra and cooking has always been something that has relaxed me tremendously, not just eating, but really spending an hour or two or more cooking. And uh, it's, it's something that keeps me
0: balanced in my, you know, (laughs) in my touring life (laughs) Well, therefore, I said earlier when you answered number seven, and you've just answered number nine about chefing and cooking. So therefore, number 10 is, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I'm going to answer with a very, very, very simple
1: Uh, answer. I am Israeli, and I think if you ask (laughs) uh, maybe... 90% 90% of Israelis might give you the same answer as I will. Um, our life is not complete without uh, a plate of hummus. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, we live for the moment of eating hummus. So I'm pretty sure that my very last meal, I know it's, it's not very complex. It's something very simple, but a good, real, homemade hummus with delicious pita breads that has been homemade, this to me is the ultimate uh, kind of last supper, should I mm. say? Uh, of course, with a lot of chilies and spicy sauce. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to <Of>, say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, of course, of course. That you know, with a little a little glass of excellent French red wine, I think that to me is
0: the ultimate uh, meal. That sounds great. That sounds absolutely great. And it looks by the window behind you that it's almost time for you to eat in Hong Kong. It's gone. We started this interview in daylight and it's now pretty much dark of night. Uh, I've had a wonderful hour or so chatting, David. It's been wonderful to meet you, um, to chat with you. And I hope very soon we can meet up. Um,
1: absolutely and maybe work together as well
0: that would be wonderful well for those listeners who might do their homework we do share a manager so hopefully that (laughs) we will Sarah will put us together somewhere but it would be lovely to meet you and chat to you and carry on this conversation thank you
1: thank you very much Mike it was a pleasure thank you
0: a mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson Next time, I chat with a conductor who, after studying in Paris and London, has gone on to have a highly successful career. This year, she starts as Chief Conductor and Artistic Director with the Canberra Symphony Orchestra, back home in her native Australia. But until then, bye bye!